We'll be in Nehemiah chapter 3 today. As you can see, we are talking about the work of rebuilding. We have had the opportunity to not only see Nehemiah as the cupbearer for the king, we saw him have a burden for his people, the Jewish nation, and for the walls of their city to rebuild. Those are his people, even though he had never lived there. Yet God gave him a vision and a burden and a passion to fulfill that. What made Nehemiah so determined to do this? Our series is, is entitled Determined because we see Nehemiah. He's not determined to build his own testimony. He's not doing this to get credibility among his peers. He's not even doing it for self-satisfaction. He's got this vision because he wants to do it for the glory of God. So that brings us to a question this morning that I want us to frame the morning with is, am I determined to put in the work into rebuilding a God-given directive? I want you to ask yourself that morning, am I determined to put the work in rebuilding a God-given directive? You see, this question determines a lot of things by the answers. The answers will reveal our priorities. The answers will reveal our work ethic. The answer will reveal the authenticity of our faith in God. Are we crazy enough to believe that God can rebuild lives? Are we crazy enough to have faith to believe that although we are broken, God can fix us? Are we faithful enough to know that God has a plan for Homeland Park Baptist Church? Can we imagine that? Are we determined to put in the work for that? You see, this question forces us to reconcile our response of God's command to the amount that we love Him and want to serve Him. Because we see that saying things and doing things are totally different. When Nehemiah was given the burden of rebuilding the walls, he did not procrastinate. He did not decide to form a, a search committee. He did not decide to, uh, to, to sit on it. He did wait four months, but what did he do in the meantime? He prayed for it day by day. He fasted for it. It was always on his mind. And he said what my prayer is for my life and for this church. Nehemiah's request to God was, you are going to have to do it in your time and your way. And when it is time, show me and I will be obedient. That starts in the lives of a believer, and that starts in the life of a church as well. Well, as we begin the passage, there are a lot of information on towers. There's a lot of information on gates, and we're going to go through those in just a minute. But I want to focus on verse 1 as we start this morning. And in the verse 1, our first point we see is, the work of rebuilding begins with a determined dependence on God. With a determined 
dependence on God. It's one thing to say we depend on God, but it's another thing to do it, is it not? It's called foxhole religion. Is it those times when we depend on Him the most is like a soldier when he is in the foxhole and there are bombs going all around him. There was one writer that said there are no atheists in foxholes. We need to have a determined dependence of we don't know if it's going to work out in our favor. We don't know if it's going to work out in a negative way, but we know whatever happens, it is God's will. And as we look at verse 1, it says, Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests began rebuilding the sheep gate. They dedicated it and installed its doors. After building the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hanel, they dedicated it. Folks, we live in a fallen world where we must depend upon God. As Nehemiah had surveyed the walls the night before, and as he had come up with his plan, he saw devastation. And, and in our world today, the walls are down. We are left open for attack. We do not live in the Christian nation we once claimed that we were. Today, cultural relativity, opinion polls, political correctness seems to trump biblical inerrancy and God's moral standards. If everybody believes that this is right or this is wrong, it must be right or wrong. And that is not the case. We don't measure up to the opinions of others. We measure up to God's Word. And there is an outright attack against God's Word and attack against His people. Not only here in America, but as we mentioned earlier, in the world as, as well. But too many times we just give in to the status quo. We just go with the flow, so to speak. <clears throat> Sometimes believers in churches do the same things. Why rebuild? There's nothing we can do about this. Or we're getting along fine like we are. Or the task God has given us is too big. Those are statements that show that we are not determined and dependent upon God. The, the, the saying that we've always done it this way before does not work if it comes to rebuilding something. If it, for example, what is it called when you do the same thing over and over again and expect to get different results? That's the definition of of insanity. Folks, <clears throat> our principles are going to stay the same. Our belief in God is going to stay the same. But we need to make strides in rebuilding our nation, rebuilding our lives, rebuilding our church. Not so that we can say that we are great, but simply for the glory of God. Amen? I do not want people to drive by this church and say, Man, that is a beautiful building. Which we do have a, a pretty campus. In the middle of Holman Park, I do believe it is an oasis among many here. But it's not about the bricks and mortar. It's about the God that we serve. Amen? Well, we must be determined to rebuild 
for God first and foremost. Nehemiah, again, as I said, that he was not trying to build his resume here. He was doing this for one reason and one reason only, for the glory of God. And the Gentiles at that time took great delight in making fun of Nehemiah, which we'll read later on in coming weeks. And But it was Jerusalem had gone from being the strongest city in the nation to being the laughingstock, the butt of a joke. And God was going to change that through Nehemiah and his people. Many take great joy in the struggles of Christians who have a hard time. You know that, right? You, Every one of you in here that is a child of God will have people either close to you or people that know you. They won't tell you this, but they like to see you squirm. Why is that? Because they are sitting back and just waiting until they can say, Aha! I knew it. All this faith in God stuff. Yeah, I see what happens when, when the chips fall. And it gets hard. There are people that love to watch us fall. But you know what? We're not here to please them. We are only here to live for an audience of one. And in your good times, folks, and in your bad times, whether you are on the mountain or in the valley, it is for the glory of God. And there is always going to be people that are going to say negative things about you, about where you work, about where you worship, or wherever else. But that doesn't mean that we have to believe it, because God has given us a special calling. Some people will say, oh, Holman Park Baptist Church, that's in an area of town that's declining. It doesn't have a hope. Our hope is in God, not in men. Oh, the crime around Holman Park is awful. It's awful everywhere, folks. Oh, the people in your church, most of them are above the age of whatever. That's okay. They don't know it. You don't act like it. I would take what this church accomplishes with our membership over any church in Anderson. Because of your heart. Because of the way that you love people. But at this point, we know that good intentions and warm fuzzies are not going to build a church. We need people that are determined to rebuild. And the second thing we see in verse 1 is that the work of building or rebuilding requires dedication. It requires dedication from those who are serving. Nehemiah faced a huge, daunting task for rebuilding the walls. But with his determined faith, he still could not have done that all by himself. What did Nehemiah need? He needed people who would follow him and that were determined to help him. God has a special task for you. Listen to me. God has a special task for you. In whatever vision God has given you, God has got a special task for you. And in our church, there is a special task for you. We, we have our nominating committee form up here. We have denomination ballots out. We are not going to beg anyone to serve. Because I believe that God is going to burden the people that need to, to fill these positions, not so that we can say, ah, look, we have all our names checked. That's not the goal here. The goal is for you finding your passion 
and plugging into what God wants to do in your life and through you. Ephesians 2.10 is a great verse I want to share with you. It's going to go up on the screen here. It says, For we are God's masterpiece. In the words of the old comedian Billy Crystal, you look marvelous. You are God's masterpiece, and God doesn't make junk. And He has created us a new in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things He has planned for us long ago. You might say, preacher, I can't do that. That's okay. God can. And there... There, no, no matter what age you are, I have seen God do amazing things to you. And He will continue to do that in your lives. Because as we see here, and we will see more in later weeks, there's always people that are going to complain. But when it comes to people stepping up and helping out to rebuild for the Lord, there is no room in God's work. Let me say this clearly. There is no room in God's work for armchair quarterbacks. You know what I'm talking about. You're watching the football game, and by the way, just a side note, got to see the Panthers play Friday night. It wasn't pretty, but football is here. Amen? I mean, there's two seasons in life, or not in life, but in the year. There's football season and not football season. And we're heading into the good season. Amen? But there is no room for armchair quarterbacks. When it comes to the work of the Lord, there is no, there is no place for self-appointed critics. I've seen it before, and I've been guilty of it before, where you sit back in the comfort of your chair, and you sit back, and you sit where you are, and you go, that ain't going to work. I remember that preacher five times ago. He tried it. It didn't work then. That ain't going to work now. There's no way that person can do that. And we just sit back, and we take pot shots at everything that comes up. There is no place in God's work for that. We need to be proactive. We need to be determined to serve. We need hands that will hold our children in our nursery. We need teachers that will support and reach out to our young families and their children. We need feet that will take the gospel into our community. We need drivers that will bring people here to hear the gospel. We need people that will continue to reach out to support our homebounds and our shut-ins. We need men to lead. We need people to serve. It's a basic tenet of a course called Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. It's not that we take our plans and say, God bless it. We look at where God is working, and we jump in. That's how it works. It's not about God blessing what we want, but it's how God work, works, and we jump into that. But understand this, is that when it comes to God's work, there's a beautiful, beautiful philosophy that Paul taught us about the church being the body of Christ. This means that you don't have to do everything. Some of you might say, I just cannot do whatever it is. Some of you might say, preacher, you see how I drive? There's no way I need to drive other people. They'd probably say that about me. But we each have a, a role. We each have a task that God has designed us for. If it's, if it's writing a form and keeping records... Do it for the glory of God. If it's fixing stuff like I see Odell and his men around here doing, I can't do that. It's like we say, 
Oh, Dad, you guys fix the stuff and I'll preach. And we're not going to mix that up. Right? <laughs> but we all have, we all have tasks. We all have parts of the body that we fulfill. Romans 12.5 says, So it is with Christ's body, we are many parts of one body, and we belong to each other. It's, it's amazing to think that, you know, when you see, when you, I spend a lot of time in nursing homes. And I, it always touches me when I go to, especially the Veterans Memorial uh, nursing home out on Belton Highway, because you see men that have given their lives. And they have lost limbs, or they are in at one day they were fighting for our freedom, and then then years later they're hurt like that. And I think you know they lost a limb for my freedom. But I think about in the church when there are people that are sitting in pews just like yourselves that say, "I know that God's calling me to do this, but I'm not doing this." You are handicapping the work of the church. And I'm not talking about Homeland Park Baptist Church. I'm talking about the church. Because if we are the body, and you are the leg, and you decide you don't want to do it, we're, we're working on one leg. You might be the pinky. I, it's hard not having the pinky. You might be the toe. You might be the arm. You might be the heart. We all have different parts of the body that we need to be a part of. So... Nehemiah puts in the work, and then we come to, if you would allow me, I want you to, to jump into our golf cart, okay? Everybody put your hard hat on. Jump into your golf cart, and I want you to take a tour with me. It's kind of hard to see this, but uh, this is a diagram of the gates of Jerusalem. We are actually going to walk around the city through the scripture, and I'm going to share with you some things about the gates. Would you believe? that these gates proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the end of this, I am going to show you how you can do a study of the gates and proclaim Jesus Christ at the same time. So this is going to be a little bit more teaching than preaching, but I think you're, I hope that you're going to get something and you're going to walk away from this and say, God has a plan. Just as God orchestrated the rebuilding of the walls, God has a plan for you. So we see, the work of rebuilding needs a plan. The work of rebuilding needs a plan. As we look at this passage, there are 38 individual workers that are named in this chapter from 42 different groups. And then there are many here that are not named. But each worker shared one thing. What was that one thing? Completing the vision God had given them. A famous preacher, D.L. Moody, says this. He says, Great many people have gotten a false idea about the church. They have got an idea that the church is a place to rest in, to get into nicely cushioned pews, and to contribute to the charities, listen to the minister, and do the share to keep the church out of bankruptcy. And that is all they want. The idea of work for them, actually work in the church, never enters their mind. Folks, I got news for you. The church today is to be a hospital for the lost, not a retirement home for the saints. The church is to be a hospital for the lost, 
And we have been given everything that we need. As we look at this passage, the word built is used six times in Nehemiah, which actually means to be rebuilt. And what's amazing here is that, yes, Nehemiah needed to get timbers to make the, the, the gates and the locks and whatnot. But here, check this out. The walls had fallen, right? They already had everything they needed. It was just in a fallen state. The mason work was already there. They just had to piece it back together. Folks, whatever God has for your life, you have got everything you need. Whatever God has for Holman Park Baptist Church, we have got everything that we need if we will simply work to put it up. God has given us everything we need to rebuild our lives, our families, and our church and our culture, but we must be determined to believe that and to work. Well, we see that Eliashib in verse 1, the high priest and his fellow priest, began rebuilding the sheep gate. The question is, what is the sheep gate's purpose? Obviously, it's to let his sheep, right? Well, the sheep were actually used in the sacrifices in the temple. And the reason that Eliashib took over the work, the high priest not only did the praying, not only did the intercession, but for this gate, they did the work as well. The gate reminds us that Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. He is the lamb that was slain for our sins. And of all the gates that we're going to look at, do you know that this is the only gate where it doesn't mention it has locks and bars? What does that tell you? That the way to Jesus Christ is always open. Woo! It's open. All we have to do is go. All we have to do is send. And people can come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, also, we go to the fish gate, which is actually going, we started at the top, Right? The sheep gate. Now we're going to the left over to the fish gate. We're going to be going into a counterclockwise position. The fish gate was located west of the sheep gate. And it also had two towers in between it. The tower of Hamia and the tower of Haniel. These two towers were the strongest military presence. Because, I mean, you've seen pictures of of castles and walls. The towers is where uh, people would basically have a lookout. And the northern end of Jerusalem was the one that was most susceptible to attacks. And so you had a gate, and in between the sheep gate, and in between the fish gate, you had two towers. The gate was called the fish gate because it was the nearest gate where fishermen would bring their catch in from the Mediterranean Sea. And there was probably a fish market there. But as we see, it's ironic in verse 5 when it's talking about the sheep gate, I mean, excuse me, the fish gate, that not everyone was on board with the rebuilding. Whenever you tried to do something for the Lord, there was always going to be the naysayers. Verse 5 of Nehemiah 3 says, Besides them, the Tekoites, made repairs, but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. 
there will always be people that think they are above working towards a God-given vision. Well, we move down further to the old gate. It's ironic that the old gate led to the new quarter of Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was divided into four quarters. And the newest quarter is where the old gate was. That brings up the reminder of putting new wine into old wineskins. That where we are trying to hold on to the old, but yet embrace the new. We also see that not only did it lead to the new quarter, that it was beside the valley gate. In verse 13, the valley gate, this is where Nehemiah, as you pick it up in chapter 2, Nehemiah started his nighttime ride. If you remember back, he found a few men, and he said, let's go for a ride. Let's ride around the wall at night. The valley gate is where they started. It was called the valley gate because it opened to the valley of Hinnom. One significant thing about the valley gate that you will know and I will know, every believer goes through valleys. Doesn't matter how strong the city is, there are always hills and there are always valleys. And every believer actually needs valleys. Why do we need valleys? Why do we need low times in our lives? It's because in those lowest of times, we depend upon God. Like I've said before, if you look on the mountaintop of these high mountains, the Rockies, there's no grass. Where is all the grass? In the valley, where all the nutrients are. What's that old southern gospel song? My God's still God on the mountain? And then he's God in the valley? Was it the McCamies sing that? Oh man, get on YouTube. That woman can sing it. But we need valleys. It keeps us humble and it keeps us dependent upon God. And now, this is not, you know, a real popular one to preach about, but the dung gate. The dung gate is exactly what it sounds like. The dung gate was located at the lowest, most southern part of the city, right down there at the bottom. And it got its name because that is where the city disposed of its garbage and human waste. And it was the main gate that went out towards the valley of Hinnom. And I'm going to blow your mind with this. Maybe, maybe not. The valley of Hinnom actually means Gehenna. Gehenna. And this is the area that Jesus used to describe hell. So when Jesus was describing hell, he was talking about what was found in Jerusalem at the bottom at the dung gate. If you look at Mark chapter 9, verses 43 and 44, if you want to take notes or, or turn there, Mark 9, 43 and 44, it says, And if your hand causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The word hell is Gehenna. And that is where he is talking about. In this valley also King Manasseh had sacrificed children to his idols. 
King Josiah turned it into a landfill. But as you and I both know, waste removal is very important to a city. If you don't believe me, there, there are several times that the unions in New York City, the garbage collectors, decided to strike. Have you, have you seen those stories before? Where they go on strike and trash start. You have this beautiful New York City and there's trash upon pile of trash upon pile of trash because they decided they're not going to come get it. Then the rats come out. Then the bites come out. Then the sickness comes out. Waste disposal was very important for that city. And it's important for us too. What do you mean? Here's what I mean. The removal of waste in the Christian life is paramount. Folks, we are not to hang on to our waste. We are not to hang on to our sin. We are not to hang on to those things that separate us from God. Well, we move to the fountain gate. And also the water gate. The fountain gate and the water gate, they both kind of serve the same uh, same uh, function here. They were located on the east pool of Siloam and near the spring of Gihon. We know how crucial water is to a city. We found that out here in Anderson just about a month ago, did we not? When the water was down, I mean, we, it was... You know, when you get that alert saying you need to boil your water and you go to Walmart and there's not a drop of water in the whole place, that's not fun. But we see here that to Jerusalem, Jerusalem was not right beside any big water source, so they depended upon the spring. They depended upon man-made channels to get their water. And as we pick up the water gate and the fountain gate, Uh, There is a man named Baruch in verse 20. It says that he was the son of Zababel, diligently repaired another section from the angle to the door of the house of Eliashib the high priest. Of all the workers in chapter 3, the only one mentioned by name that is told to be diligent, another word meaning zealous, was Baruch. I'm here to tell you something, folks. What will turn something around here is for people to find some people that are zealous and are happy and are excited about serving the Lord. He was the only one known for being zealous. Do you know what the term zealous means? It means to burn or glow. Jerusalem relied on the man-made channels to get the water, and water was important to any city. But as we look at water, you have to go to John chapter 4, verse 14, where it says, But whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. So here, as you put a couple of the gates together... I want you to figure this out. If you start with the dung gate at the bottom, it shows that we need waste removal. We need to get rid of things that are bad for us. We need to rid our lives of sin. And as we move over to the fountain gate and the water gate, we see that we are cleansed by God's Spirit, cleansed by His water, and we are filled with the Holy Spirit. 
all of that by taking a tour of the gates. Then we have the Tower of Ophel in verses 26 and 27. This is where a heavily armed staff stayed because they were guarding the temple. And now we move over to the horse gate. This was uh, the big defense for the city. Now, Solomon actually went against what God said because God warned his people not to trust in horses and chariots. But Solomon imported these horses from Egypt. And horses became an important part of the nation's defense. That would be like we have several Air Force bases and Army bases located in the United States. And in some of those bases, there are new and exciting technologies. There's, there's new drones that can fight. There are new kinds of tanks that can go faster and it can do more devastation. But folks, we need to be careful. Our trust is not in those pieces of equipment. Our trust is in the Lord. And the horse gate was a symbol of we need to be careful not to put our trust in items of warfare, but we put our trust in God. And also the horse gate reminds us that we are in a battle. Ephesians 6, which we're going to look at tonight, talks about the spiritual battle that we are in. And then finally, the east gate. The east gate, also known as the golden gate. Did you know that this is the very gate that Jesus entered Jerusalem in on Palm Sunday? Jesus entered in the eastern gate and then waved palm branches and said, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Currently, the eastern gate is sealed with blocks of stone by the Turkish government. But you know what's even greater than that? Hang with me. In Ezekiel chapter 44, verses 1 through 3, you can write this down and look at it later. But in Ezekiel 44, verses 1 through 3, it prophesies that the gate will be This is not a surprise to God. And not only is it currently sealed, but Jesus will return through the eastern gate. Amen. The same gate that he went through to be crucified is the same gate that he will go through to bring us back unto him. And if you don't believe me, go again to Ezekiel chapter 43. Verses 1 through 7, to where it is prophesied, not only that that gate will be open, but it's prophesied that Jesus, the Messiah, will come through that gate. That is why everything, you, you hear it all the time, but it's the truth, everything hinges around Israel. And we know that when that gate is open, Jesus Christ is going to come. Walking through. Woo! The inspection gate was a gate that operated as an army post where most of the troops would gather for numbering and inspection. And then we see finally that our last point, the work of rebuilding is to proclaim the gospel. The work 
of rebuilding is to proclaim the gospel. Why is that? Because you see in verse 32, where do they end back up? Remember I asked you earlier, put on your hard hat, get in a golf cart, let's go around the wall. We have gone around the wall and we have seen every gate, every tower, and each one of them had a purpose that dealt with Jesus Christ. It dealt with our relationship with Jesus Christ, of removing waste, of becoming cleansed, and being filled with the Spirit, and expecting Jesus Christ to return. And we come back, we end the tour where we started, at the Sheep Gate. Everything begins and ends with Jesus Christ. Amen? The Jewish nation continued to ignore Jesus as their Messiah. Romans 11.25 says, They are blinded. But every brick, every person, Nehemiah's passions all lead to the ushering in of Jesus Christ. When I talk to you about rebuilding your life, when I talk to you about rebuilding your families, when I talk to you about rebuilding this church, it's not for our glory, it's for His! To lift Him up, to prepare for that time. Folks, I don't want Jesus to come back and us be in the middle of a business meeting or a committee meeting. I want us to be out there doing the work of the Lord. I want us to be a hospital for sinners, not a retirement home for the saints. I want us to usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ. I don't want someone to say, I live a block from your church, and you never once told me about Jesus Christ. In closing, a God-sized vision can only come to fruition with determined leadership and determined workers that want to see Jesus glorified. Folks, I'm not trying to pad my resume. I'm not trying to make our numbers look good for the associational report. I'm wanting to glorify Jesus and to be obedient to what He's called us to do. We believe, we love we serve and we benefit from His glory. We must work together if we are to finish the work for the glory of God. And I will close with this passage. 1 Corinthians 15:58 says, Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor for the Lord is not in You coming to church, you serving the church, God sees that. And your life is better for that. There are many people this morning that probably decided to stay home. And that's between them and the Lord. But I pray that you were blessed by being here this morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for this service. And Lord, you are calling people to serve you. You are calling people to be determined to do your work, not only in their personal lives, but in the lives of their families and their church as well. Lord, as we studied earlier, serving you begins with having a right relationship with you. For some, they've never accepted you as their sacrifice, as their the sheep, Lord, that was led to the slaughter. If someone doesn't know you as their Savior and Lord, I pray 
They ask you to come into their lives today, Lord. By praying the sinner's prayer, Lord, they can come forward and we can pray with them and lead them to a relationship with you. But Lord, we do have many here that have let other things creep into their lives. Those sins that hinder their fellowship with you. And I pray that they ask for forgiveness. They confess those sins and repent. And that, Lord, if someone would like to join this church and help us rebuild these walls, then, Lord, lead them to do so. They can come forward. Or if someone just needs prayer, Lord, this invitation time is yours. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.